Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and MTL Ministries. This sermon series is called Uncovering Religion. We live in a day where the world is saturated with contradictory faiths and beliefs. Can they all be right? Are they all wrong? As Christians, it is imperative that we understand something of what these religions teach and believe so that we can accurately discern right from wrong. Okay, I'm just going to read Matthew 28. Verse 1 says, After the Sabbath. What does that say? After the Sabbath. After the Sabbath. Okay. Was it on the Sabbath? No. After the Sabbath. At dawn on the first day of the week. Get ready. (laughs) Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. Now, in each of the Gospels, there is an account that talks about that after the Sabbath on the first day of the week when Jesus had risen. Acts 20, don't turn to this, I'll just quickly go there. If you can get there quicker than me, you can read it with me. Acts 20 verse 7 says... On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. When? Day of the week, which is? After the Sabbath. Sabbath, Which is the? mm, Sunday. Sunday. I was going to say Monday. (laughs) Because we're trying to think Monday is the first day of the week. Because it's the first day of the working week. But Sunday is the first day. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And uh, it goes on that uh, about... Paul speaking into the wee hours of the morning and, uh, and um, a guy fell out of the window. So I'll just leave you with that, those thoughts for a moment. I'm just going to explain to you quickly again, and this is for the internet audience as much as it is for you, that I've decided to do this series, and this series is uh, Uncovering Religion. Um, and I'm doing it for a very real reason. Many Christians are extremely ignorant of the religions and views of, of this world. Due to this ignorance, many have been deceived by these religions and lured away from Christ. A lot of Christians will even try to tell you that our God is the same God that the Muslims worship or even the Hindus. Many very powerful and influential Christians have been deceived by these religions. In an effort to keep all of you and those of you listening via the internet upon the path of pure devotion to Christ, I will continue to uncover the religions and philosophies of this world, exposing their belief systems. The Uncovering Religion series is to reveal Satan's plan to deceive mankind away from a pure devotion to Christ. And this this issue of uh, deception is very, very real. Actually, it's so real that many uh, multitudes of people will lose their salvation, will go to hell because they allowed themselves to get deceived or their pastors allowed their flocks to be deceived. And they got lured away into something that was false. And you can, you can have good intentions, but believe a lie, can't you? 
You can be a good person but believe a lie and reject the truth. So to me, this should be one of the pastor's main functions in the church. And this is why. In Mark 13, 5 to 6, it says, uh, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and he will deceive many. Matthew 24, 10 to 11 says, At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And this time of, he's talk, Jesus is talking about the time of the end when many will turn away from the faith. Now, when Jesus uses the term many, he's referring to a huge portion of the population of the world. A, a, a large portion. He didn't say some, which would have meant maybe a 50-50 or less. He said many. And, and then he also says broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are upon it. But narrow is the, le- is the way that leads to life and only a very few find it. So, so those that get to heaven are, are the elite. The elite. doesn't mean that we have to be like a crack commando squad or something, the elite. It just means that we have to be really sound. Very sound in doctrine. Sound in our understanding. And, and very aware of what Satan is trying to do to lure us away from a pure devotion to Christ. 2 John 7-8 says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such per- person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. There's plenty of warnings in the scriptures, isn't there? Matthew 24, verses 23 to 24 says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. To deceive even the elect. You know, when I think of that scripture, I think, well, who will the elect? Those that aren't being deceived. But maybe they, if that were possible to deceive the elect, is there a possibility of deceiving the elect? Well, I think that what that refers to is maybe for a short time and then they work it out. That's how I always sort of saw it. Maybe just a short time, they don't get it, and then, oh, of course, because the Holy Spirit is so closely connected. Plus, they do their research. When I think of the elect, I think of guys like Joe Schimmel. And every sermon Joe Schimmel preaches just about, I've listened to anyway, he will expose deception that's occurring in the world today. 2 Timothy 3.12-14 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it. So continue in what you have learned. Don't step back. Don't fall back from what you've learned. Continue to press forward in these things. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was afraid of that. And that was back in the early church when the disciples were had pure doctrine. Not like today when there's a lot of 
a lot of um, you know misinterpretation of scripture, a mass of it. But that right back in those days they were getting deceived. Those that had seen Jesus in the flesh, maybe, you know, they're still yet getting led astray. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And that is why this sermon series is here. Expose them. And in exposing them, we always uh, get a real good picture of the, pure, the purity of Christ and pure Christianity compared to what these other guys are, are looking into. So I must expose these deeds of darkness as this church is my responsibility and my job is to make sure that you all get to heaven. You know, God's, God really has made it clear that if, if my life's work consisted of getting you lot into heaven, it would be a job well done. You know, just so we can go up there and just imagine when we get there and it's just all over, no more of this, you know, and we can um, just enter into eternity. It was the most joyous time that you could ever imagine. And it'll be a, a time of celebration, wouldn't it? Yeah, of course, for eternity. Yeah, we can, <laughs> sit, we can actually finish it. <laughs> the scriptures declare that in these last days we are facing probably the greatest deception that Christianity has ever confronted with men and women of God in the multitudes falling to Satan's deception. The scriptures tell us that these times now that we are living in, the times before the return of Christ, and the further on we go, the greater the deception will get, until the point where it will be the worst of times that you've ever, that the world has ever experienced as well. I won't go into that though. That's a another sermon. So studying these religions will help us to be able to accurately discern truth from lies to get a deeper appreciation for the solidness and soundness of our faith in the living Christ in comparison to the insubstantial state of these other religions and belief systems. It will also help us in witnessing the people who are in bondage to these beliefs. Now, today's sermon's on Seventh-day Adventism. And I just want to note, though, uh, I want to make it clear that the information I'm providing is not necessarily accepted any longer by all SDAs or Seventh-day Adventists as there has been a major split in the religion. And some, some have renounced much of the cultish doctrine I will be disclosing, but many haven't. I don't know the percentages, but I know from a, a recent communication with someone who is a Seventh-day Adventist, and the approach she made towards me uh, was that she still believes this stuff that I'm about to disclose to you. So Seventh-day Adventism is, uh, actually it's making a lot of ground in countries where the Christian church um, isn't in a high-profile church like in America and Europe, uh, America, Australia, Canada, and I think England, the church is sort of stronger. Um, and so we, we sort of worked out that the SDAs are sort of cultish, so we, um, they don't uh, get as many members here. But in the other parts of the world like throughout Europe and throughout um, a lot of the third world countries, it's making great gains. And they're teaching, a, a part of it is true. They're, they've got doctrinal things that are true, and I'm going to exp, uh, explain those too, but a, quite a bit that is also very deceptive. History of the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists originated during a prophetic anticipation of the return of Christ during the 19th century. 
In the 1840s, there was an increased awareness of the second coming of Christ, and many panicked in response to the teachings of a lay Baptist minister named William Miller. Uh, Miller taught that, according to Daniel 8.14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, Miller believed that these evenings and mornings talked about by Daniel were literal years, so there'd be 2,300 years, and he postulated that Jesus would return on March 21st, 1843. However, Jesus said in Mark 12:32, No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So when they asked Jesus, when will you return? Jesus didn't say Mark 21st, 1843. What did he say? No one knows, only the Father. So if I stood here, if I ever stand here and say, Jesus is going to return, you know, in a year's time on this day, guys, walk out of the church and never come back. <laughs> Leave me to my repentance. <laughs> All right? Anyway, the SDAs believe that Jesus was coming to cleanse the earth, the sanctuary. Many people sold their earthly possessions to prepare for Christ's return. Uh, these became known as Millerites or Adventists because they were looking for Christ's advent, the advent of Christ. That's why they're called Adventists. But as, as we know, that date passed and there was no Jesus. So Miller recalculated his prediction and submitted that he had missed an Old Testament festival. So he announced that Christ would return on October 22nd the following year, 1844. Guess what? I let you know that. He missed another one. <laughs> <laughs> missed another Old Testament. Yeah. It's a bit silly, isn't it? When the Bible clearly tells you not to go date predictions, it, it, what that proves to me is that this Miller fella didn't read the Bible. He, he wasn't a thorough theologian of the Bible. He did not go through it and find that you're not supposed to go and name a, name a, a time when Jesus would return. Only the Father knows that. And that's the problem you're going to find with Jehovah Witnesses and Christian, what I call Christian cults and Mormons, that these guys are not learned in the scriptures. They find favorite scriptures and they uh, interpret everything else according to what they have assumed their few scriptures mean. And they go and they mess the whole thing up. And um, a lot of them really, a lot of the followers aren't encouraged to read the Bible. They're encouraged to read the information provided by the organization. In 1844, when Jesus didn't show up again, this became known as the Great Disappointment. It would have been. So William Miller passed from the public scene in shame, yet not all Adventists left the group. Some teachers grabbed Miller's mantle and moved on in the movement. Hiram Edson who was born in 1806, died in 1882, was a Methodist minister who started teaching that Christ did in fact return on October 22nd, 1844, but not to earth. So if he, if he returned but not to earth, where did he return? Doesn't make any sense. So instead, this is how they twisted it about, Jesus had moved from the right hand of the Father to the most holy place, the heavenly temple. You know what? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but he's also in the Holy Temple. He's also down here with us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus is not limited geographically. So 
So straight away, they, go, they don't understand the power of who Christ is. That Christ is omnipresent. When he was on earth, he wasn't omnipresent, but he was omnipresent through the Holy Spirit. He could tell what someone was thinking under a fig tree before he got there. He, he, he witnessed a conversation that took place before he got there. But he wasn't omnipresent in the flesh, like everywhere in the flesh. That would have been weird. You know. So this then, to the remaining followers, what followers was enough to convince them that the SDAs was an authentic and prophetically accurate faith. So obviously, many people believe this stuff. Ellen Gould White, 1827 to 1915, became the eventual leader of the Adventists. She was only 16 at the time of the Great Disappointment of 1844. She claimed to have received her first vision in December of that year. In her vision, she saw a large number of Adventists following Christ to heaven. With this testimony, she rose to prominence in many churches. In 1858, White allegedly received another ecstatic vision. She said that God told her that people needed to prepare for his cleansing by going back to Sabbatarian protocols, which included Saturday worship, worshipping on Saturday. These teachings included dietary restrictions, as in the Levitical law, in, in Leviticus 11, where the, the dietary restrictions are put forth. In essence, returning to a works mindset. So these guys are feeling guilty all the time because if they break the Sabbath, they go home and do the lawn on Saturday, you know, they're in big trouble. They, in the Old Testament, breaking of the Sabbath was punishable by death. And so to return to that system is to return to a works mindset, not a saved by grace mindset. An SDA would feel condemned if they broke a Sabbath. This whole topic of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments is another sermon for our other series, which is called Truth, Judgment and Eternity. But for now, if, you, if, you, if any of you have downloaded Joe Schimmel's podcast from his uh, blessedhopechapel.com, something like that, um, called, he's got a sermon called Abolishing the Law, uh, and it's dated 1st of uh, February 2008 what he what he's setting forth is not only are we under a new covenant but the entire world's under a new covenant mm. so the old testament covenant doesn't apply to anyone any longer we're all under the new covenant we're under the blood of christ anyway um that's it's just a worthwhile sermon having you listen to ellen white was a prolific author with over a hundred books along with thousands of articles for periodicals Two of her most famous books were The Desire of the Ages and The Great Controversy. So what uh, does the SDAs teach? They affirm the this is the stuff that is doctrinally accurate, as far as we know. So they affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, so that it's the inerrant Word of God, and there's a lot of even... There's ministers that I've even come across who uh, claim that the Bible is does have errors. They don't um, claim it to be totally the Word of God. And these are guys that are Presbyterians and, you know, Baptist ministers and what have you that claim this. But uh, they claim it's inerrant. They believe in the Trinity, which is another sign that they're a true Christian faith. They believe in a literal six-day creation. Uh, They believe in Christ's substitutionary atonement, that Christ was our substitute. 
He died for us. They also believe by justification by faith alone and also the resurrection of the dead to judgment. So these things, actually, if, if we really boil it down, these things will get you into heaven. Right? You can, uh, believing these things solely will get you into heaven. My problem with it is, is it's what they add around all that, the legalism that's coming into it, which many um, theologians argue about whether they would call them a cult or not. Examined in the light of traditional Christianity, the movement does affirm the core essentials of the faith. However, they believe, as stated before, that they believe that the Levitical law is still binding on Christians and not following the law is considered apostasy. And apostasy is basically a renouncing of the, of the faith. So if you don't follow the dietary restrictions laid out in the Old Testament, you are in apostasy and you're, um, you're renouncing your faith in Christianity. So they teach a strict diet in accordance with Leviticus 11 and they encourage vegetarianism. Uh, they also believe in the Sabbath. Uh, they believe that we should worship on the Jewish Sabbath, which is a Saturday. And some Adventists go so far as to say that all Christians who worship on Sunday have the mark of the beast. And so we are called the harlot church. They believe that the beast, the church at Rome, and her harlot daughters replaced the seventh day sabbath with the eighth day the idolatrous day of the sun god but we'll see that more we already have seen that the scripture says contrary to that they teach that all true believers must come out of the harlot churches of christianity where they worship on sunday as sunday sabbath keeping is the mark of the beast mm. so they also preach annihilation they hold to an annihilationist view of eternity for the wicked. So according to the principle 27, they believe that the unsaved and the wicked will be destroyed rather than eternally, eternally tormented, as the Bible says. Now, I didn't create hell. I didn't come up with hell, right? But the Bible says that hell is a place of eternal torment. It doesn't say hell is a place where you're cut off from God and you never know that you ever existed again. That's, that's what atheists believe happens when you die. <laughs> but that's not what the Bible says. I would actually tell you the truth. I would prefer to know that if loved ones who, go, who die not knowing Jesus will just be, that's it. Right? But I can't, because I would rather that, go and say, God, no, that's not, you shouldn't have eternity set up like that for these souls. Because God's already got his reason for it. And I'm sure when he grabs us one day in eternity and explains the overall reason for hell, we will go, of course, it's obvious. Actually, I'm about to start writing a fourth book on hell where I believe God's going to expose or reveal to me a lot of the truths about hell that will help us to understand why hell. They believe that a person is not naturally immortal so that a person doesn't have an immortal soul. So that way, when they die, if they're not saved, that soul just stops and there's no more acknowledgement of anything. So consciousness stops. But the Bible tells us different. That consciousness does not stop. It continues forever. We are immortal. The physical body isn't until we get a resurrection body, but we are, our souls are immortal or eternal. Interesting. How are you saying that they believe in the inerrant Bible? But they reread the scriptures. So yeah. many, like, you know, just the part of the 
How does that all equate and fit in? Yeah. No, they, they read into it. They say when Jesus was talking about the rich man in hell and Lazarus, the beggar, um, dipping the finger in water, and that that's just an, a, a parable analogy. But where he says, you know, like, and your worm will never die. Yeah, no, look, I don't know how they come to these conclusions. They have their little way of reinterpreting the scriptures and talking those things away. Yeah. Or they just ignore it altogether. White's authority. This is Ellen White. They hold that Ellen White's writings, uh, they hold her writings up at the same level as scripture, as she was, as if she was the continuation of God's truth. They say that her works are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. That's always troubling when a person, while they're living, is held in that light, and then after she dies, she's placed up there. You know, I know some brilliant authors, um, you know, Tozer and, and, and Finney and, and Ravenhill, and there's, there's so many, but I would never hold their writings up above the Bible. The Bible is, has, is the inerrant word of God. It's the, it's the book that God placed on the planet. God did not place Ellen White's books on the planet to be held in as scripture, that if you state her words, it must be true. So, you know, wouldn't it be good if you could just read Rob's works and say, Rob said this, so it's true. Believe it. <laughs> you got no choice. It's I'm not scripture. <laughs> yeah. You know, I should be, I, I try to align myself with scripture. That's what my life's ambition as an author is. Yeah. So globally, Adventists work for the basis, from the basis of mainstream uh, Christian church in their outreaches, evangelism, political acceptance, and church growth. So they proclaim that Old Testament Seventh-day Sabbath keeping as an absolute necessity for salvation. Not belief in Christ and what he did for us on the cross is the absolute necessity for salvation, but that you've also got to just keep the Sabbath and then you're saved. As this is the greater of the Ten Commandments to which everyone supposedly must adhere. It's a bit troubling, isn't it? And that's why they have the good doctrines and the truth of their doctrines lines up with um, mainstream Christianity or traditional Christianity, but then they go and add, oh, but add to that keeping the Sabbath and then you're saved. And when they add to that, they sort of pull down the traditional stuff. Yeah, of course. And then they condemn just about every last one of us in their eyes. Because and then most and then what happens is they get an exclusivity thing going on that only the Seventh Day Adventists are going to get into heaven now because these guys are all harlots. They they break the Sabbath every week, so now we're the only ones going to heaven, and that is the definition of a cult. That's the problem. They teach that Sabbath uh, Saturday Sabbath keeping is the seal of God. Allegedly, all true believers must earn this all-important seal by Sabbath-keeping to escape the seven last plagues in the book of Revelation. Weird stuff, how that all got in there. Adventists blend and confuse Old Testament signs and covenants which pertain to the physical nation of old Israel with the New Testament covenant, covenant written in the blood of Jesus Christ. The New Testament, we are under a new covenant instituted by Jesus, sealed by his blood. We are not under the old covenant of Moses, sealed by the blood of lambs and bulls and calves and 
and on and oxen and, and pigeons and what have you. We are not under that anymore. So what are you going to do? If you're going to go back to that, go and fulfill every last bit of it. Start sacrificing your bulls at the altar. You know, because you can't go and say, well, I'm only going to do this bit of that and that bit of that and that bit of that. Go and do the whole thing and see if you can keep it. Because the Jews couldn't. Israel failed time and time again keeping that covenant. Therefore, when Jesus came, he set us all free from that. So why go back to it? Doesn't make sense. Isn't it ironic and an incredible simile that Jesus was constantly attacked by the Pharisees for not observing the Sabbath as they expected him to? Do you, how many times did you read in Scripture? They came, he did an incredible healing. What did they find wrong? Oh, your healing's great. But you did it on a Sabbath. You worked. Jesus, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, mate. I want to do a good thing on a Sabbath. If you're, if you're a donkey fell in a well, wouldn't you pull him out if it was a Sabbath or would you leave him to die because you don't want to work? You know, it's just common sense, isn't it? Of course your healing is, should be done on a Sabbath or any day. A question we have to ask ourselves is, are the Seventh-day Adventists joining the Pharisees in their hypocrisy with the same attitude for they attack us for worshipping Jesus on Sunday? But you know what? I worship Jesus on Sunday. I worship him on Saturday. I worship him on Friday, etc. You should worship Jesus every day. You know, many churches around the world run three to four services a day. Is that going to be condemned as well? It's... Not the day. We, we don't worship. Jesus said there'll come a day when you don't worship on this mountain or anywhere. You just worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about times, dates, seasons, and, and, and all that stuff's gone. That's old. The Lord's Day. The SDAs try to claim that Constantine, 272 to 337 AD, was the first Christian to bring in Sunday worship. This, of course, is totally false and misleading. Sorry, guys. I didn't realize I'll... Um, Scoot through. I won't read all this. What it says basically is many of the early church fathers throughout uh, right from 100 AD and before talked about Sunday worship. It was instituted right from the word go. And um, if you look back, uh, Justin Martyr and um, Dionysus of Corinth, Melito of Sardis, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, even Ignatius and so on, in their writings they're talking about Sunday worship. So, and Paul, what about Paul? He said, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. <laughs> Wouldn't Paul be saying that to the SDAs? I fear I've wasted my efforts on you. You're, what are you doing? You missed the point. It's about Jesus. It's not about the Sabbath. Rob, uh, I know you're scooting. Sorry? I know you're scooting. Yes. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the Greek word for Sunday is uh, Kyriaki, and Kyriaki is taken from Kyrios, and Kyrios is Lord. Uh, the Lord's Day. Yes. yes. Well, what I actually scooted over was the Lord's Day. Uh, the SDAs try to claim that Constantine, the Lord's Day, is a Christian name for Sunday, the day of communal worship. It is observed by most Christians as the weekly memorial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is said in the four can canonical gospels of the New Testament to have been witnessed alive from the dead early on the first day of the week and so on so in closing the SDA's emphasis of their doctrinal views by opposing the church of Christ is causing disunity and has separated it from the universal church of Christ 
They've become their own body. They're not part of the body of Christ. They're their own separate body. Not all of them. Some have renounced it. I just would, have, would advise those that have renounced the SDA uh, connection, change your name. Yeah. Change your name. Don't stay Seventh-day Adventist if you're not believing Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Because this, what I've preached today, is Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. Statements in SDA books such as, In this matter, the Seventh-day Adventist is the only consistent Protestant. This spirit of exclusivity rules all cults. Therefore, these kinds of viewpoints set Seventh-day Adventists up as being a cult. They study the Bible profusely from their point of view. Yet a spirit of prophecy guides them, not sound biblical truth. I've got the idea that, you know, let the Bible change your theology. Don't try to change what the Bible says to suit your theology. You know, be transformed by the Word of God. Don't change the Word of God. That's my, you know, approach to it. They think everyone else is wrong and that they know the only true way. I, however, consider those that will get chosen for the kingdom of God as lovers of Jesus, believers in his resurrection, and that he abides now at the right hand of the Father in heaven and everywhere. Not just there, but everywhere. These are the conditions, and we who love God and Jesus are saved by grace, not by observing a Sabbath. Let's pray for the Seventh-day Adventists anyway. Lord, we just uh, lift the Seventh-day Adventists up to you. Lord, there are some well-meaning, uh, good-hearted people in, in that faith, in that belief system. And Lord, uh, on the outset, much of the doctrine lines, aligns itself with traditional churches. So someone, uh, unbeknownst to them, can move in, go into one of those churches and hear very similar messages to what they hear elsewhere. But Lord, there is a... Uh, a deep underlying spiritual um, deception going on through this Seventh-day Adventist church. And Lord, we pray for this to be broken over those people, that you will set them free by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will reveal to the leaders their deception, open scriptures up to them, open up the Bible to them in a new way, and not by uh, the spirit of Ellen White and the demons that possessed her to, to bring her uh, doctrines in, to the SDA church, but Lord, by the Spirit of God, who will set men free and break the shackles that is holding them bound mm -hmm. to these doctrines. And so, Lord, we ask you that you help them and uncover this uh, deception and set them free in the name and the blood of Jesus. Amen. I'm just going to be doing a communion sermon. A member of the Reverend Thomas Guthrie's church said, Pastor, I said to myself this morning that I would not partake of communion. I was distressed by my guilt and unworthiness. However, when I got ready for church and while I was washing my hands, the Lord seemed to say to me, Cannot I, in my blood, wash your soul as easily as you wash your hands? I came to communion this morning and sat under Christ's shadow with great joy. I, I don't know about you, but there's been times where you know stuff's gone on and, and I just don't feel like going to church because I feel filthy. You know, if you had, I don't know if anyone's had that experience. When you get married, you sort of tend to. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry, I've Vina. No, no, 
you know, you're just little things happen in the morning and that's it. Don't want to go to church. Take it in. <laughs> Forget it. Not in a good frame of mind there. But that's when you really most need to go to church. That's my point. I'm glad you don't do it anymore. No, imagine that. That's it. No church this morning. <laughs> go away. <laughs> All right. But I'm sure all of us have done wrong this week. Is that right? How many of you, could you keep your hand down if you feel you haven't, but put your hand up if you feel you've done some kind of wrong this week. I'm, oh, that one was a little late in coming. He was there going, mm. the other hand. Yeah, that's it. Or oh, oh, this, six. I hit it for a six this week. The cricket jokes are coming thick and fast. Yeah, they are. So I'm sure all of us have done some kind of wrong this week, and I like how little Aliki put her hand up. What would you have done? I couldn't imagine you doing wrong. Could Tessa vouch for that? Okay, not necessarily. It might have not necessarily been wrong to man as well. You might not have actually wronged any man, uh, but you could have wronged God. Is that right? Yes. You know, you might have gone a day where you didn't bother reading the Bible or even considering, you know, maybe watching cricket or something. (laughs) We may have used his name in vain. We could have gossiped. We could have got angry or cursed or took part in coarse joking or anything like that. Um, We could have not even prayed or dishonoured God in some way. I don't know what it is, only you know, but you know it's so easy to think we are right all the time and are justified in our actions. Is that true? Do you know Christians have been probably most guilty of this, is thinking that they are right all the time? And many Christians, if you talk about repentance with them, they, it's just, it's like a, I've been there, done that. That was back then. I don't do that sort of stuff anymore. Yet these are the ones most in danger of a, of a you know, a negative judgment against them. So we have to always remain humble. That's why Jesus says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who are called by my name, Christian, we're called by his name, humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. And I'll heal their land and, and bless everything that they do. So it's when we humble ourselves as the people of God. A true Christian is a humble man or a humble woman. One that doesn't think they're right all the time. Someone that will you know, take the blame for stuff you know, and not retaliate. Actually, it helps us to get... Um, when, we're, when we're thinking we're justified in our actions all the time, it helps us to get on with our days without guilt. It, if we make up our minds that we are right in all circumstances, then that's, we can pretty well just walk through the day you know, without guilt. And that, that's, that's troubling. It, it Actually, most people, that's how they live. That's how they move and have their being. But for us, it's troubling because if we're know we've done wrong and we just continue on in our day, then it's like, how, how is the day going to be honoured by God? How can God honour that day? So we have to, every day, come before the throne and say, Lord, forgive me, show me what I have done so that I can have you back, you know, more powerfully upon me and upon my life.
We are not right all the time. We don't always do the right thing. As long as we are a human, we will error. Is that right? And as long as a holy God controls the entrance into heaven, and according to the Bible, only the holy can enter into heaven in their own right, and if not, we are cut off from God if we don't enter into heaven. This is why we need Jesus in our life. If we want to come before a holy God, and especially on that day of judgment, we have to have Jesus standing there with us. He must be beside us. But Jesus, as the Son of God, lived a sinless life before God and then laid his life down on the cross for the sins of men. He was the only one that could offer an acceptable sacrifice for men, and he did it to save men. And he was the only one that could because he was the only one that was sinless. He did no wrong. Therefore, according to the law, he had rights to heaven. Because he was sinless and he had lived the life in absolute perfection, he, by his own right, could enter heaven because that's according to the law. So he fulfilled the law. But what he did, he thought, rather than enter heaven on my own and be the only one up there, I will now lay my life down and dispense out my right to enter heaven to anyone who will claim it through me because I'm the only one that can claim it. Perfect entrance into heaven. So his sacrifice for our sins was so great that the Lord God said that if anyone believes in him and the sacrifice he made for our sins, that they would not perish but have everlasting life. God made a way for us to get into heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot go to heaven except through Jesus. There is no other way. And good works will not get you into heaven, as we know from studying Uncovering Religion. Um, good works are as filthy rags before God. Jesus said that the way to heaven is narrow and few are those who enter in. The more I live in this life and see the obstacles that are, that are placed before men in the form of negative propaganda about Jesus, the more I realize that his words are coming to pass, that narrow is the way that leads to life and few will find it because actually the truth is most are deterred from it. They just don't want to know about it. They just have watched one or two or three documentaries and they assume this whole Jesus stuff is baloney. But don't they know that Satan runs the media? Satan produces these documentaries. It's all by a spirit of antichrist that this stuff is getting pushed out there. Few are those who will turn to him and accept him as Lord and Saviour. Few are those who will care enough about their eternal lives and what happens in death. How many people could you say talk to you and are concerned about eternity? Do you think less today than ever in history? Well, yeah. according to, according to um, the scholars of the past, they struggled with the same issues, that people weren't concerned about eternity but never to the degree that we're seeing today. Back in, the, in, the, um, in those times, there was a huge awareness of God. And I, actually, with this, the sermon I'm going to be doing soon on Seventh-day Adventism, the awareness of God was the thing that, uh, in the uh, 1840s, was the thing that brought the Seventh-day Adventists to prominence back in those days. Um, because people were aware and were concerned and especially, you could imagine how many people would be aware of eternity when the plague was 
plague hit Europe. And was it 35 million people killed by the plague? I think. I think it was 35 million. Anyway, so what do people do? They mock Jesus. They curse him using his name in vain. They ridicule him and insult him. But you know what? He is still Lord. He is still God. He still reigns. No anti-Christian documentary can change that. No negative propaganda can change that. No man's opinions can change the fact that Jesus still lives and Jesus reigns and he is king. We can change our own minds about who we think Jesus is, but that's not going to change the fact that he is king, according to Scripture. He is God, ruler, judge of all humanity, and in the end he will judge us by one standard. Those who truly love him and live for him will receive eternal life. That's pretty well it. If you love Jesus and live for Jesus, you will receive eternal life. Those who pay lip service to Jesus but don't live for him, and those who live as antichrists will be discarded from his presence. In a nutshell. So today, let us honour him for the greater sacrifice that was made for men. Let us remember him and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Amen. Lord, we just, you are king. You are Lord. You reign. And today we acknowledge you. We acknowledge you uh, in this place that you are our king. You are our Lord. You are our saviour. And we thank you for what you did on the cross for, our, for us, Lord. You wiped and away our sin. You atoned for our sin. And Lord, we come to you today with a repentant heart, knowing that this week we have done wrong. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for not living up to uh, the holy standard that you set for us when you lived on this earth. And Lord, because we fall short, Lord, we need your blood to wash over us and cleanse us today. Lord, so as we take of this bread now, we just think back and remember that, Lord, your body was broken for men. Your body was broken so that we could be holy, the word says. So, Lord, we take of this bread now. And, Lord, we just ask you, help us to be holy. Help us to be holy Christians before you. Just take this bread in remembrance of your body. And Lord, we take of this cup in remembrance of your blood. And Lord, uh, just ask you to just forgive us for our sins, Lord. And as we take this cup, Lord, wash away our sins. Lord Jesus, cleanse us and purify us and make us, make us whole in your mighty name. Wash us now, Lord. And we just take this cup in remembrance of your blood.